Good morning. It really is uh, a great joy and a privilege uh, to be with you today and to have the opportunity uh, to preach this morning. Uh, it's really too long a story to tell the whole thing, but I have been praying for you as a church for a very long time. Uh, actually, I was praying for Christ Church in town before Dave Abney ever knew he was going to be a pastor, before he knew he was going to plant this church. You see, Phyllis and I have not just our daughter, Glory, and our son, Arnie. We have four other kids as well, six kids. And throughout their lives, from the time they were born, we have consistently prayed uh, the same prayers for them. First of all, number one, we've prayed for them that they would know and love the Lord with all their heart. And second of all, we've prayed that God would give them a godly spouse. And we've also prayed for them that God would surround them I'm a, I'm a crier, so you may have to. <laughs> but that God would surround them with Christian friends who would be a support and encouragement to them, that they would be the church for them. So we have been praying for you. Our kids are uh, right now of the marrying age. Arnie and Clarine have been married for a little bit of time, but we've had two weddings in the past few months in our family. And I've been privileged to perform the wedding ceremonies of all my children. And it's always emotional for me to, to see a bride walking down the aisle, but particularly to see this tangible answer to a lifelong prayer that I've prayed for my children. So in the same way here this morning, as I look out at you, I'm full of emotion and thanks for you and for the way you have prayed for my family. Arnie and Clarion shared with us how before he left for Japan on deployment, you prayed for them. And I would ask that you'd continue to pray for them. Arnie is in Japan for several more months, a couple more months, I guess. And uh, just ask that you would pray for Clarion and Blakeney and Arnie while they're apart. So, Dave asked me to preach today, and I thought it was really appropriate that he asked me to preach on prayer. He had told me about the summer series, praying through the Psalms, and I thought to myself, that's the perfect topic, because you see, I am a professional prayer. I get asked to pray all of the time. Everywhere I go, people ask me to pray. If there's any context that I find myself in where it's appropriate for somebody to pray, I am usually the one that gets asked to do it. Now, these are most often prayers of blessing, you know, prayers for uh, thanks for the food, prayers uh, for a time of fellowship, prayers at the beginning of a new season or a new school year, prayers as someone moves into a new home or begins a new marriage, uh, prayers at the birth of a child. But I also get asked to pray very frequently prayers of petition, prayers uh, when people are sick, when people are facing sadness, failure, frustration, even death. You know, people look to pastors as professional prayers because it is our job to pray. Part of what we're called to do is a ministry of the word and of prayer. But they also ask us to pray because they quite often don't feel like they can pray like we do. They feel inadequate in their prayers. They don't feel like they know what to say or how to say what needs to be said. But the truth be told is that pastors don't always know how or what to pray. Sure, we can say grace with our hands tied behind our back. We can do it without thinking. But 
How do you pray with the young childless couple that has just miscarried again? How do you pray with your friend whose spouse has just told them they no longer love them and will be leaving to live with someone else? How do you pray with that person in in the prime of their life who has just been told by the doctor that they have stage four cancer and only a few months to live? Well, it's at times like these that we have to turn to the Psalms and go to the school of prayer. The Psalms, you see, teach us how to pray in every circumstance of life. And in our text this morning, we learn how to pray through our tears. I really appreciated Dave's prayers a moment ago and his introduction to that time of prayer. We really could have stopped just then. Um, He really set up so well uh, the kind of prayer that we have to pray when we don't know what else to pray. So we come to Psalm 13 this morning, and it's interesting because we don't really have any context for this particular psalm. And we know is, uh, it was read that the introduction to the psalm says it's for the choir master and that it's a psalm of David. It was written by him. But when was it written? What were the circumstances surrounding David's life as he penned these particular words, as he talked about his enemy? Was that enemy Saul before David was king? Was it his own son Absalom who tried to overthrow his kingdom? Or perhaps was it something else like an illness later in his own life that threatened him with death? Well, the reality is we don't know. And I'm sort of glad that we don't. I think it lets us feel the words of David much more personally in the midst of our own tears. You know, the scripture tells us a lot about David. You know, when you think about David, in many ways, he was sort of a superhero. Here's this young guy who leaves the pastures of his father's sheep, comes and defeats the greatest arch enemy of Israel, Goliath, the Philistine. He becomes like a rock star. The women sing songs about him, and he's called to the palace to sing for the king. He then becomes the beloved king, and he's known as a man after God's own heart. He's got a pretty good life. But it was a life that also had its own share of trouble. And so here in Psalm 13, David gives voice to the prayers of all of us who find ourselves crying tears. Perhaps you're here this morning with a lot of personal issues that are breaking your heart. But even if that's not the case and you may be like David and life is pretty good right now, you're healthy, you're happy, you're secure in your job, you're prosperous, your family is blessed. Even so, as David mentioned a moment ago, it's impossible to escape the fact that we live in a broken, messed up world. A truck plows through a crowd of holiday revelers killing scores of innocent people. Videos crowd our news feeds of African-American men being killed on camera by police. 
police officers themselves being cut down by sniper fire, a gunman opens fire in a crowded nightclub in Orlando and 50 people die in chaos and confusion, bombs exploding in airport, military coups and civil war. It makes all of us, it should make us all cry out, how long? How long? Oh, Lord. David gives voice to our tears over the brokenness of this world as he cries out over and over and over and over again, how long, how long, how long, how long? Listen again to the first two verses of this short psalm. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Again, I, I find it tremendously comforting that we don't have the context for this psalm. You know, there are a lot of psalms that the context is very clear. I know Jonathan preached just a few weeks ago on Psalm 51, and we clearly know the context of David's sin with Bathsheba and the confrontation by Nathan and the call for humility and brokenness over sin. But here, David gives voice to the anguish we feel over the brokenness of all things, the brokenness of the world. You see, things are just not the way they're supposed to be. This world is full of suffering and brokenness and it makes it seem as if God is not there. That's how David feels. That's what David expresses in these opening verses of the psalm. He feels abandoned by God. Things don't seem like they can get any worse. But there's something we shouldn't miss. Even in the midst of these, feeling, these feelings of abandonment, in the midst of this utter darkness that the psalm begins with, there's a glimmer of light, a glimmer of hope. And the glimmer comes in that four-time repeated question, how long? How long, you see, is not a question of if. How long is not a question, God, are you going to show your face? God, are you going to remember me? God, are you there? No, it's a question of when. It's a question of when will you remember me? When will you turn your face to me? When will you answer me? You know, it's a lot like taking your kids on a trip in the car. I've got six of them. I've heard the question a lot. When will we be there? How long? How much longer is this trip? How long until we get there? Are we there yet? You see, they're not asking, if we get there, Dad, what will happen when we arrive? They're saying, when will we get there? Their question is loaded with certainty, with confidence and trust. David's question expects an answer. He expects God to respond. He expects God to intervene. He expects God to do what God does. And so he moves 
from this expression of darkness and pain and abandonment to petition in verses 3 and 4. Listen again to the text. David says, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. You see, in the beginning of the psalm, in the first two verses, David is crying out from the darkness. He cannot see anything. God has forgotten. God has hidden his face. And so now David prays. And it's not a preacher prayer. It's not a professional prayer. David doesn't say, oh, sovereign Lord, you're mighty in power and rule over all creation. Look in favor on your humble servant today. No, David is shouting out in his pain. Over here. Look over here. Look at me. It's as if he's shooting a flare into the dark sky of his pain. He's saying, if you don't come quickly, I'm going to die. All will be lost. This is the kind of prayer that David is calling us and teaching us to pray. It's not eloquent. It's not formulaic. It's not accomplished. It is the cry of desperation and helplessness to the only one who can help. The NIV translates the beginning of verse 3 as, Look on me and answer me. David has already complained to the Lord in the beginning of the psalm that he has hidden his face from him, and now he calls on God to show his face. Why does David want to see the face of God? David knows the promises of the ironic blessing that we find in Numbers chapter 6. Those words that are familiar oftentimes in a benediction. Words of a prayer that I've been praying for my granddaughter each night as she goes to bed. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. One of the things we so often miss in translation, we hear that word peace, the promise of peace. It's the Hebrew word shalom, and I'm sure you've been told before. Shalom translated peace is accurate, but it's so limiting. It really is so much more of a full-orbed word, a word that encompasses so much more, and it's a promise of God that things will be made right, that things will be the way that they are supposed to be. So David, in the midst of the brokenness of the world, cries out to God, show me your face, shine your face upon me, give me peace, make things the way they ought to be. David knew the promises of God were faithful and true, and he knew that this was his only hope. And this is the lesson we learned from him. We don't have to hold it together. We don't have to have eloquent prayers. We don't have to do what it takes to make things right. God himself will do it. And we see a progression now through the psalm. We begin with David's pain and the darkness of his life and the brokenness of this world. We hear him cry out in prayer and petition to God, asking for him to shine into the darkness, to bring light and bring shalom, to bring peace to this broken 
world. And now in the final verses of the psalm, we hear him lift his voice in praise. He moves from darkness to light. Listen to the final two verses of Psalm 13. David says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. We go from the darkness and despair of the beginning of the psalm to the end of the psalm and find David singing with joy because of God's salvation. God is a God who saves. David will write later in Psalm 68, verse 20, Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. How does that salvation come? How do we escape death? How does God save? We see in the psalm there's no indication that David's circumstances change. There's no indication that things get better. It is likely still very dark. But it's like when our children go to bed at night into a dark room and they're full of fear. The solution is not going and turning on the light and saying, sleep with the light on. The solution is when mom or dad comes and crawls into bed and lies down beside them in the presence of the parent, comforting the child, being with them, brings more light than any switch could ever provide. And so too, God comes and shines his face upon us. John's gospel begins with that beautiful prologue of God shining his light into the world through his son, Jesus. The light has come and shone into the darkness. Jesus has come to be with us. God with us, Emmanuel. Jesus has come to shine light into the darkness and he has triumphed over darkness and death on the cross. He has gone to the cross and defeated death forever. He has conquered sin in the grave in his resurrection. And he has brought and is bringing shalom, peace. He's making things the way they ought to be. And because of that, we like David can sing. We can sing into the darkness. We can sing into the brokenness of this world. We can sing with joy and confidence because God is faithful. God saves. God rescues. And he brings light. I think of the song. It was written by the 19th century American poet, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Longfellow had a tragic life himself. His wife died in a tragic fire. And his young son left home without his father's permission to join the Union Army and to go and fight in the Civil War. And Longfellow was distraught when his son was severely injured in battle. And it was at that time as he was anguishing over his son's life-threatening injuries and reflecting on his own wife's death that he wrote that very well-known carol that we sing. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. 
And wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. But in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, he doth not sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. Amen. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, this world is broken and messed up. We are broken and messed up. But we thank you for the hope of the gospel. That in the darkness you have come. You have entered into the darkness with us in your son to shine the light and the hope of salvation. We pray, Lord, that as we encounter the pain and brokenness of this world in our own lives, in our own families, in our communities, but even around the world, that you would help us to be ambassadors of light, that we too would cry out in the darkness, the wrong will fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth through our glorious Savior who has become our peace and who has made peace with you possible and calls us to peace. We pray it all in his name. Amen.